Chapter Seven of Bacteria in Daily Life by Grace Coleridge Franklin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Some poisons and their prevention. Little did the learned Dutchman Leeuwenhoek dream when more than two hundred years ago he recorded in his Arcana Naturae that he had found viva animacula in his saliva that this the first beginning of bacteriology would lead a couple of centuries later to the inauguration of a new era in the treatment of disease in which the so-called animalcula from being considered as curiosities would come to be regarded as powers for good and evil of the first importance protective inoculation or serum therapy of which the public have lately heard so much in connection with diphtheria is the direct outcome of bacterial investigations which during the last two decades have been pursued with such zeal in every part of the globe the vast domain of immunity which until recently was an undiscovered country is now being bit by bit annexed and in all directions workers are engaged upon opening up new tracks in overcoming difficulties in changing chaos into order the problems which surround immunity are of so complex and subtle a character that their mastery is by no means either easy or rapid and many recondite researches appear at frequent intervals on this subject in foreign and other scientific journals rendering it a difficult matter to keep pace with the new discoveries and the latest theories the interest in this country in toxins and antitoxins not unnaturally centers round that branch of the subject which deals with diphtheria this disease having of late years figured so prominently in our mortality tables whilst the production of diphtheria and other antitoxic serums have been so finely elaborated abroad that it already constitutes an article of commerce and doubtless helps to swell the exports of our great continental commercial rival in this connection the following statistics published by dr Yauser of the mulhas hospital are of interest regarding the mortality from diphtheria before and after the introduction and application of diphtheria antitoxin the death rate from this disease writes dr Yauser, which in 1892 and 1893 was fully 50 per cent, fell in 1895 to 38.5 per cent, in 1896 to 28.8 per cent, in 1897 to 16 per cent, to 20 per cent in 1898, 15.15 per cent in 1899, and 18.75 per cent in 1900. So far the efforts which have been made to mitigate human suffering have attracted most attention but it will be remembered that pasteur before he commenced the study of hydrophobia had already won his laurels in combating disease in the victory he gained over anthrax the ravages of which so frequently decimated the herds of the french farmer and robbed him of his well-earned return on his capital and labor in summoning the brilliant director of the german imperial board of health to south africa to investigate the nature of rinderpest and if possible discover a means of protecting cattle from its onslaught the cape government afforded another opportunity for the scientific study of a disease associated with animals upon the successful mastery and limitation of which the agricultural prosperity of south africa is so largely dependent being as it is one of the most fatal and contagious maladies to which cattle are subject apart from the great commercial importance attending dr koch's discovery of a device whereby cattle can be immunized or protected from contracting rinderpest when exposed to its contagion this discovery is of great scientific interest inasmuch as it has inaugurated a new departure in methods of immunization the previous methods in vogue for inducing immunity in animals from a particular disease 
consisted in converting the virus itself into a vaccine, as was done by Pasteur in his classic investigations on anthrax and its prevention, and secondly the employment of antitoxic serums in which the virus is not directly inoculated into the animal to be protected, but in which an intermediary is employed between the virus and its victim. This intermediary, or living machine for the generation of the antitoxin, is usually a horse, which is artificially trained by being given gradually increasing doses of the virus or toxin, until it ultimately withstands doses which in the first instance would infallibly have killed it. When the animal has arrived at this satisfactory stage or condition of complete immunity, some of its blood is from time to time drawn off, and the serum thus obtained constitutes the antitoxin which now figures so prominently in modern therapeutics. Besides diphtheria antitoxic serum, there are also those of tetanus or lockjaw, plague, the famous anti-venine serum, about the discovery and preparation of which greater detail is given later on, and many others which are still the subject of experimental inquiry. Now conscious method for the compassing of rinderpest differed from both the systems above mentioned, inasmuch as he neither employed artificially weakened cultures of the virus or an antitoxin rinderpest serum. Instead, he took one of the natural secretions of an animal infected with rinderpest, and by injecting this into a healthy animal it was discovered that the latter, as is the case with a vaccine, suffered only local and temporary discomfort, and acquired pronounced immunity from the active virus. The secretion selected by Dr. Koch and his assistant, Dr. Kola, for this purpose was the gall, and it might be supposed, from the fact that its inoculation into healthy animals did not communicate the disease, that the rinderpest bacteria were absent from the gall. But this is not so, for Dr. Kola has succeeded in isolating the latter from the gall of infected animals, and, moreover, has proven them on isolation to possess their full complement of virulence. Further investigations made by Koch and Kola have shown that the explanation of this seeming anomaly is to be found in the fact that the gall of an animal suffering from rinderpest contains a substance which prevents the migration of the rinderpest bacteria, with which it is associated, from the point of inoculation. Hampered in their movements by the controlling influence of this special substance, which has been generated in the gall, the bacteria remain rooted to the spot where they are first situate and only a passing and exceedingly slight local affection results, which on its departure leaves the animal with an immunity from the rinderpest lasting some four months. A number of interesting investigations have not unnaturally been stimulated by this remarkable discovery, and researches on the properties inherent in the gall of healthy animals of various kinds have been recently carried out by Dr. Neufeld of the Institute for Infectious Diseases in Berlin, which are, however, of a too technical nature to deal with here. As an illustration of the practical use to which Koch's gall immunization method may be put in dealing with outbreaks of rinderpest, reference to a recent report furnished by the health officer of Shanghai may be of interest. Dr. Arthur Stanley describes the outbreak as follows, quote, A large herd of cattle infected with cattle plague was brought to Shanghai from the Tanyang district, around the Grand Canal, for export to the Allied troops in the north of China. The disease spread to an adjacent dairy, most of the cattle dying. On this dairy becoming infected, a police cordon was established round it to prevent ingress and egress of cattle and ingress of persons unconnected with the dairy, while the outside infected herd was removed to an isolated part of the settlement. 
Having been previously convinced of the futility of police cordons in the prevention of cattle plague, I was not surprised to find, within a short time, that the disease had spread, by the meeting together of cattle coolies at a common tea-house, to three other dairies at a distance of a quarter, a half, and two miles from the original source of infection. As the animals are not, as a rule, taken away from the immediate vicinity of the dairy, there being no grazing fields, and as neither father nor dung is taken from one dairy to another, it is practically certain the infection was carried by the dairy coolies. Immediately on the second series of dairies becoming infected, it was resolved to apply the gall immunization method of Koch as being the means at hand. About 1,500 cubic centimeters were collected from the gallbladder of a rinderpest animal, and 10 cubic centimeters were injected into the dewlap of each of the 20 remaining cattle in the dairy. The injection caused slight local swelling and tenderness, but no constitutional symptoms and no alteration in the milk supply, an important matter in a dairy. In all, 68 cattle were injected with cattle plague gall. Of these, 17 were among isolated uninfected herds. The remaining 51 belonged to infected herds, and among the latter, 11 died of cattle plague subsequent to the injection." Unquote. Dr. Stanley points out that ten of these animals, judging by the time which elapsed after the injection, when they showed the first symptoms of the disease, must have been already infected when the injections were made. The eleventh animal, however, undoubtedly contracted the disease after and in spite of the injection. Considering, continues Dr. Stanley, the usual excessive mortality during an outbreak of this disease, the result may almost be compared to the success of vaccination against smallpox. Three young bullocks, each having received 20 cubic centimeters of cattle plague gall, were purposely exposed to severe infection. They remained well, while unprotected animals around them died of the disease. In the domain of immunity there is, however, no more fascinating or interesting story than that which deals with the discovery and elaboration of a cure for snake bites. A discovery which, while attracting but comparatively little attention in this country, should prove of paramount importance to our fellow subjects in the great Indian Empire. The significance to India of Professor Calmet's discovery of a specific cure for snake poison may be gathered, indeed, from the statistics which have been compiled of the number of deaths attributed by Indian officials to this cause alone, amounting, it is said, to some 22,000 annually. The Pasteur Institute in Paris has dispatched many pioneers of science to various quarters of the globe, but perhaps no scientific missionary has produced more fruitful results than has Dr. Calmet. It was while acting in the double official capacity of médecin de première classe du corps de santé de Colonnais and director of the Bacteriological Institute of Saigon in Cochin, China, in the autumn of 1891, that Calmet first commenced his experiments on the neutralization of serpent venom in the animal system. He had indeed exceptional opportunities in the matter of serpent venom wherewith to carry out his investigations, for during the rainy season a village in the neighborhood of Bac Lu, Cochin, China, had been attacked by a band of most venomous serpents. These creatures, driven by the floods into the very huts of the natives for shelter, created a terrible panic, and no fewer than forty individuals were bitten by them. The panic was certainly not without justification for these serpents belong to the species known as Naja tripudians, or Cobra de Capello, renowned for the deadly nature of their venom, and widely distributed over India, Burma, 
Sumatra, Java, Malacca, and Cochin, China. But until Calmet set to work to systematically study the nature of this reptile's venom, but little precise or reliable information had been obtained as to its character. The governor of the district gave orders that as many as possible of the reptiles were to be captured alive and forwarded to the director of the Bacteriological Institute, and a plucky Annonite actually succeeded in securing ninety specimens, which were forwarded in a barrel to Dr. Calmet. This formidable gift was received with enthusiasm by the director, who realized the importance and scope of the inquiry, which he at once set himself to systematically work out. Forty of these reptiles arrived alive, and several were at once sacrificed to secure their venom glands. Each gland resembling both in size and shape a shelled almond contains about thirty drops of venom, and in this transparent limpid liquid is embodied a toxin of extraordinary strength. It was, of course, necessary in the first instance to ascertain, within as narrow a limit as possible, the exact degree of toxic power inherent in the venom, and to determine, if possible, the precise lethal dose in respect of every variety of animal experimented upon. A correct calculation of the quantity of venom required in every case was, however, found to be quite impossible, for so virulent is the poison that a single drop of an emulsion produced by pounding up eight glands in thirty grams of distilled water is sufficient, when introduced into the vein of a rabbit's ear, to kill it in five minutes. All the mammals to which Calmet administered this cobra venom, such as monkeys, dogs, rabbits, guinea pigs, rats, succumbed more or less quickly, according to the size of the dose. Small birds and pigeons die very rapidly, but the domestic fowl is more fortunate, being somewhat less susceptible. Frogs also fall a prey to the venom, but they are far more refractory than rabbits, for it takes thirty hours to kill a frog with a dose of venom which would infallibly destroy a rabbit in ten minutes. Toads, curiously, do not enjoy to the same extent this power of resisting its toxic action, for they die more quickly than frogs, whilst it makes short work of lizards and chameleons. Fish form no exception to the rule, and even invertebrates such as leeches are killed by minute traces of venom. Whilst Calmet has found that the venom of different kinds of reptiles exhibits marked differences in its toxic character, he has also discovered that the venom secreted by one and the same serpent varies considerably, according to the length of time the animal has fasted. He describes how he kept a naja hage, Cleopatra's asp, in his laboratory, which during the whole eight months that it lived never took any food whatever, although it was offered the most diverse dainties. On its arrival it was made to bite on a watch-glass, this being one method adopted for collecting the venom. The liquid was at once dried, and 0.7 milligram was found to kill a rabbit weighing nearly four pounds in four hours. Two months later on, when the venom was again collected, 0.25 milligram proved a fatal dose. On the death of the animal at the end of eight months, the venom extracted from the glands was so toxic that it only required 0.1 milligram to kill a rabbit of about the same weight as the previous one. The same curious fact was noted in the case of a cobra's venom. Another circumstance which appears to control the degree of toxicity inherent in serpent venom is the interval of time which elapses between two successive bites. The longer the interval, the more virulent is the venom, and Calmet points out that these observances are in accordance with what has for a long time been known in France with respect to indigenous vipers, that their bites are far more dangerous and far more fatal in the spring, after the winter period of torpor is over, than in the autumn. 
Until quite recently it was thought that the only creatures which could resist the fatal action of this poison were serpents, both poisonous and non-poisonous. Calmet was led to this conclusion because, although he inoculated large doses, as much as ten drops, into cobras, they suffered absolutely no inconvenience, and the same results were obtained with harmless snakes. On repeating these experiments, however, and using much larger quantities of venom, Calmet has found that they do ultimately succumb. That their susceptibility in comparison with other animals is slight may be gathered from the fact that a lethal dose of venom for reptiles is roughly estimated to amount to as much as three times the quantity of venom normally present in their respective poison glands. These animals, therefore, although very refractory, are not absolutely immune from the action of venom toxin. There are, however, other animals which enjoy a relative, although not absolute, immunity to snake poison, and amongst these may be mentioned swine, hedgehogs, and the mongoose. Swine, it is well known, will greedily devour reptiles, and in some countries they are specially trained up and employed for this purpose. Of particular interest, however, are some experiments which were carried out to test the traditional immunity towards this toxin ascribed to the mongoose. These animals are very useful in sugar plantations, and are largely employed to keep down the serpents and rats with which they abound, for the carnivorous little mongoose is extremely partial to such prey. Attempts have been made by sugar planters to introduce them into Martinique, where they are not found in the wild state, as in the island of Guadeloupe. Six specimens of the mongoose were forwarded to Calmet from Martinique, and these particular animals, it was stated, had never been set at liberty since they were imported, so that they had no previous experience of snakes or venom. On arriving at the laboratory, one of the little creatures was placed in a glass cage along with a large cobra. The cobra, at once rising up and dilating its neck, darted with fury upon the mongoose. But the latter, thanks to its extraordinary agility, escaped being caught, and took refuge, stupefied and terrified for the moment, in a corner of the cage. This stunned condition, however, did not last long, for just as the incensed cobra was preparing to make a fresh attack upon its insignificant little victim, the latter, with wide open mouth, rushed up and jumped upon the head of its enemy, viciously bit through its upper jaw, and broke its skull in a few seconds. Thus, although in size but a little larger than a squirrel, this tiny creature was more than a match for a cobra two yards long. Artificial inoculations of cobra venom into the mongoose fully substantiated all the observed facts as to its remarkable immunity from this poison. A dose sufficient to kill a large rabbit in three hours was absolutely without effect. Only when the venom was introduced in quantities amounting to as much as eight milligrams was it followed by fatal results. Thanks, therefore, to their extraordinary agility and remarkable power of resisting the effects of this lethal toxin, these little animals are able to battle successfully with the most dangerous reptiles. The rapidity with which serpent venom becomes absorbed by the system is almost incredible, and is well illustrated by the following experiment. A rat was inoculated with venom near the tip of its tail. One minute later, the latter was cut off a short distance above the point of inoculation. But this operation was quite unable to save the animal's life, for even in that brief interval the poison had accomplished its fatal work, and a few hours later claimed its victim. This rapid diffusion of the venom helps to explain the difficulty which is experienced in arresting the course of the poison by local treatment for its passage is too rapid to permit of its being overtaken by superficial measures of even the most stringent character. 
but Calmette points out that local precautions are not to be neglected, for although they cannot nullify the action of the venom, they undoubtedly do delay its progress, and thus create a longer interval or respite during which an opportunity is afforded for administering the antitoxin. Before, however, passing on to the investigations which have culminated in the production of a specific antidote for this terrible toxin, there are a few more details which Calmette has furnished as to its character which are of interest. Serpent venom is characterized not only by its intensely virulent properties, but also by the tenacity with which it retains them under diverse circumstances. Thus it may be stored up for a whole year, and yet at the end of that time be as active as ever, and even after several years, although its toxic powers are somewhat reduced, it still retains them to a very appreciable extent. Unlike the bacterial toxins, this venom toxin can stand exposure to considerable temperatures without injury to its activity, and that of the cobra only suffers after it has been submitted to 98 degrees centigrade for 20 minutes. Sensitiveness to temperature varies, however, with the snake from which the venom is derived. Thus the venom of the so-called tiger snake of Australia will stand being exposed for 10 minutes to from 100 to 102 degrees centigrade, and its virulence only disappears when this temperature has been applied for 20 minutes. The venom of the black snake, another Australian variety, loses its toxicity at a temperature of between 99 and 100 degrees centigrade, whilst an exposure to only 80 degrees centigrade for 10 minutes is sufficient in the case of viper venom, according to Messrs. Fiseli and Berton, to profoundly modify its lethal action. A continuous exposure for a fortnight to a temperature of 38 degrees centigrade does not affect cobra venom in the least, but if during that same time it has been placed in the sunshine, it entirely loses all its lethal properties. Thus a pigeon was inoculated with about 30 drops of venom which had been exposed to the sun's rays for 14 days, and it survived, whilst another pigeon was inoculated with a little over six drops of a similar venom which had been kept during this time in the dark, and it died in a quarter of an hour. All these elaborate researches as to the character of serpent venom were essential to enable the next step to be taken in the elaboration of the antidote. Before this great achievement could be accomplished, it was necessary to first succeed in artificially immunizing animals against the effects of this powerful toxin, so that the serum of such animals could be applied for the protection and cure of other animals from the effects of snake bites. It may be readily conceived that the task of artificially rendering animals immune from snake poison was not an easy one, for the process depends upon training the animal to gradually withstand larger and larger doses of the venom, and considering the intensely toxic character of the substance which had to be handled, the danger was ever-present of the animal succumbing to venom poison before its serum had acquired the requisite pitch of protective power to render it of service as an antitoxin. Dr. Calmette tells us that he carried out a very large number of experiments before he met with success, but it is not necessary here to discuss his various efforts. Suffice it to say that at length his labors were rewarded, and the following extract from one of his memoirs describes the methods which he adopted for this purpose. Quote, the best method of procedure for the purpose of vaccinating large animals destined to produce antivenomous serum consists in injecting them from the outset with gradually increasing quantities of the venom of the cobra mixed with diminishing quantities of a 1 in 60 solution of hypochlorite of lime. The condition and the variations in the weights of the animals are carefully followed, 
in order that the injections may be made less frequently if the animals do not thrive well. Quantities of stronger and stronger venom are in turn injected, first considerably diluted, and then more concentrated, and when the animals have already acquired a sufficiently perfect immunity, the venoms derived from as large a number of different species of snakes as possible are injected. The duration of the treatment is of considerable length, at least fifteen months, before the serum is sufficiently active to be used for the purposes of treatment. Unquote. More recently, the snake venom employed by Dr. Kelmet for the immunization of his horses consists of a mixture of colubrine and viperine poisons, the former making up about 80% of the mixture. A solution of this mixture is heated at about 73 degrees centigrade for half an hour and then filtered and injected into horses. An immense number of animals have been vaccinated by this method at the Pasteur Institute at Lille, where Dr. Calmet is now director, and in one of his memoirs we are told that they have horses there which have yielded during a period of 18 months serum extremely active against venom. These horses receive in a single inoculation, without suffering the least inconvenience, doses of venom sufficient to kill fifty horses fresh to the treatment. Large quantities of this serum have been forwarded from the Lille Institute to various parts of the world where venomous serpents are most frequently met with, and already important evidence has been collected as to its efficacy in cases of human beings bitten by dangerous reptiles. So impressed with its importance are Indian medical authorities that its preparation has been included in the work which the new great bacteriological institute at Agra is carrying on. The importance of the production in situ of this antivenomous serum has been recently demonstrated by the experiments which have been conducted in the Plague Research Laboratory, Bombay, by Mr. Lamb and his colleagues, on the keeping properties of such serums in India. From the careful investigations which have been made on this subject, these gentlemen state that antivenomous serum undergoes a progressive and fairly rapid deterioration when stored in hot climates, and that this deterioration is greater and more rapid the higher the mean temperature to which it is subjected. The protective potency of this horse serum may be gathered from the fact that it suffices to inject a rabbit, for example, with a quantity amounting to about one two hundred thousandth of its weight to ensure the latter acquiring complete immunity from a dose of venom capable of otherwise killing it in twelve hours. The rapidity with which it acts is also extremely remarkable. Thus, if a rabbit received two cubic centimeters, about fifty drops, of antivenomous serum in the marginal vein of one of its ears, it will suffer with absolute impunity an injection of venom into the marginal vein of the other ear capable of killing it under ordinary circumstances in a quarter of an hour. Its curative powers are not less remarkable, for it is possible to inject venom sufficient to kill an animal in two hours and to let one hour and three quarters elapse before administering the antidote and yet at this late stage to save the victim's life, although it is necessary where such a long interval has occurred between the respective venom and serum injections to employ the latter in larger quantities than is usually required. Dr. Calmet believes that the antitoxin may be applied at an even more advanced stage of the disease if it is employed in yet larger doses. Another novel and important feature about this antivenomous serum is the fact that it not only protects animals from one species of very active venom, such as that of the cobra and other poisonous snakes, but it also affords protection from the dreaded venom of scorpions. This is a very remarkable and significant discovery, for hitherto the opinion has been stubbornly held that each toxin requires its specific antitoxin for its correction. 
Dr. Calmet has, however, frequently indicated by his researches that this view cannot be considered so completely proven as is claimed by its supporters, and his latest investigations support the theory that particular toxins may be counteracted by several antitoxins of different origin. Thus it has been shown by Calmet and Roux that rabbits hypervaccinated against rabies acquire the power of resisting venom poison, and that the serum of horses vaccinated against tetanus or lockjaw also nullifies the action of serpent venom. The practical bearing of this discovery is obvious, and the hope is justified that the at-present cumbrous appliances required for the elaboration of antitoxins of such varied origin will ultimately give way to simpler and less costly methods, which will admit of these new antidotes being more widely circulated and applied. We have seen that although most animals fall an easy prey to serpent venom, yet there are a few notable exceptions, amongst which may be mentioned hedgehogs, swine, and mongoose. Now the very natural question arises why, if these animals are already, in such a high degree immune from this poison, should not they be employed to furnish forth protective serum, instead of laboriously training up susceptible animals to become artificially immune and supply this venom antitoxin? End of Part 1 of Chapter 7